Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Has Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Reminder about our quest to get to 1,000 subscribers on YouTube, 1,000 followers on Instagram and Twitter. Want to really up our followership that way. We can continue to grow this Hazard Ground community. And look, guys, this is getting bigger every single week, and we're so thankful that you're part of this. I've had people reach out to me on my own social media and continue to tell me how much they enjoy the podcast and continue to tell me about all the guests that they're hearing, the things that they're learning, and just the stories that are being told. And that really is the most important part of this podcast is getting those stories out there. You know, I was talking with a former guest on the podcast, uh, James Laporte. You can go back and listen to his episode. Uh, just an incredible story of his as he was a Marine who became a Newsweek reporter. And, you know, we talked about the fact that this podcast is making history in a sense that, you know, we are telling stories that may never be told again. If you look at Ken Burns' Civil War documentary, right? We only have great stories from there because there were actual letters that people wrote to tell the stories, and those were part of the real tale. And that's why these stories are so important because maybe not five years from now, maybe not 10 years from now, but 20, 30, 40 years from now, when we tell the story of America's wars, including the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq, these are the stories that people will live with forever. And so from that standpoint, we are very, very proud and excited to help make history through the Hazard Ground podcast. Make sure you go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon banner at the bottom of the page or under the Sponsors tab and do your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. We donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. So, again, thank you guys for being part of this community. Keep the comments coming. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. It doesn't have to be a long one. Give us five stars and leave a rating. Let us know what you think. Tell us who you'd like to hear from, and we'll do our best to Get them on the show and keep the comments coming on Facebook. We respond to all of them because we love hearing from you guys. With all that out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. And joining us this week on the Hazard Ground podcast is a former Marine sergeant who had two deployments to Afghanistan in 2008 and 2010. He left the Marine Corps and became a New York Times reporter. He works on the Washington Bureau and is a Pentagon correspondent. He is Thomas Gibbons Neff joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Thomas, welcome, brother. Thanks for being here. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are the second former Marine who went into journalism. James Laporta, who was on an earlier episode, um, you know, I joke around with him. So I, I guess private joker and um, mil- basic military journalism actually became a thing for Marines. Yeah. yeah. What is he? What's that, that line? And, and uh, Full Metal Jake's like, oh, 400s. Like, what are you, Mickey fucking Spillane? You think you're fucking some sort of fucking writer? <laughs> yeah. All right, but you actually went to Georgetown University, so you were on a different path. How and why did you get in the Marine Corps? Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I went to Georgetown uh, after, oh, okay. after my, time, my, my time in. So I, I enlisted at a high school uh, in 06, and I was going to do the reserves and ended up going to University of Rhode Island for about a semester and then dropped out and switched my contract to active duty. Um, and then, yeah, I went to boot camp in January of 07 and got out in 11 and then um, 
yeah, applied to a bunch of schools and through, you know, I mean, no, no clue really how I got into Georgetown other than, you know, I think my platoon commander at the time was, a. uh, he had just gotten out as like a lacrosse star at Georgetown and helped me set up with the alumni interviews. And my girlfriend at the time's parents, you know, knew a guy who knew a guy and that was, uh, fortunate on, on, uh, on my behalf. So yeah, went to Georgetown afterward. So what was the impetus for joining the Marine Corps though? Um, yeah, that, that's always a tough one. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, nine 11, of course, is always the first thing that comes up. My dad was a Vietnam vet. Uh, I was a swift boat guy and you know, I, I was like, you know, like a hundred pounds in high school and like five, two, um, you know, it's always something to prove, right? Like uh, how could that, not that be, that not be a part of it. All right. So you get through boot camp. Was it as tough as you thought it was going to be? Was it what you expected? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, boot camp, uh, I mean, it was just more of a mind game than anything. I mean, the physical stuff was fine, but just, uh, just the, uh, I don't know, taking like an hour to put on your socks in the morning and just kind of getting, getting beat down. And, and my dad passed away uh, like a few weeks into boot camp. So I had to go home on emergency leave and then reset. Uh, got got dropped all the way to zero. So that was, so yeah, boot camp, boot camp was a little difficult for all sorts of reasons, but yeah. So to that end, again, I don't want to pry as far as the passing of your father, but was there more of a resolve, because you said your father was a Vietnam vet, to kind of, you know, finish boot camp and, and carry this through as part of a, a way to, you know, um, honor his memory? Yeah, I, I mean, I I think boot camp, it didn't really become like, oh, I got to do this for my dad. It was like actually just like a way to, to grieve, really. I mean, you were just getting, I mean, you you were worn out from, you know, four in the morning to eight at night whenever they did the lights. So just, I mean, it kind of helped that, right? Like, you know, as far as compartmentalization, if you're just focused on like getting through the day, it's hard to focus on the fact that like you just lost your dad. So it, it helped a lot. And yeah, I, and I think my drill instructors, they were all kind of, I mean, drill instructors are, can be pretty mean people because it's part of the job, but I think they kind of understood that too. So yeah, it helps. How, how quickly after boot camp did you get to your first deployment? So, yeah, let's see. SOI hit the fleet in July of seven. So March 08 was, was our first Afghan tour. Where were you going in Afghanistan? What was your mission? What were you told? Yeah. So we were originally, we were on a Mew. We thought we were going to do a med float. Um, and that quickly, I mean, we started hearing rumors around Christmas that, Hey, we might just, you know, go straight to Afghanistan or Afghanistan would be part of the Mew. And then um, I think we were at like was a dental in February and they were like, yeah, we're going straight to Afghanistan. You know, all the, all the Mew training kind of went out the window because thank God, you know, spending 10 days on the LPD was brutal. So really glad we didn't have to do that. Um, but yeah, our mission it was kind of unclear. I mean, it was like, you know, it took me a while to figure out or I had to, you know, get back from that deployment and kind of realize like, oh, why did Marines start going to Afghanistan in, in 2008? Because we had kind of thought that had been a closed book. And I guess we were one of the first units that were part of George Bush's review of Afghanistan as he was about to you know, leave office and had decided that, you know, more troops were necessary, especially in the south. 
So um, when we got over there, our mission, uh, we were kind of tasked that we had to secure like a, a main line of communication, a route Redskins, route Red, route Elephant. I think a full, um, they all had that kind of name. And then we would secure that. And then we would push a convoy. Weapons company would go down and, and secure five rhino on Pakistani border, which was Bob Rhino was big in 01, 02 when U.S. troops first went into Afghanistan and then they had pulled back and I think the ensuing years and it had been kind of blown over by sandstorm. So for some reason we were going to reopen Bob Rhino and it turned out, you know, when we went into Garmser, you know, we were told the 82nd Airborne kind of the red, set, red seat, left seat with them because they were doing um, – you know, air assault operations. And they said, Hey, you know, when you get there, Taliban are going to fight for a few days and then they're going to leave you alone. And that turned out not to be the case. We kind of went into Garmser and they, uh, they, they, they definitely stuck it out. And so the battalion and then RC South kind of decided, uh, to, to hang out in, in Garmser for the remainder of the deployment, you know, secure, quote unquote, secure, uh, the district and, um, yeah. And then have the Brits come in and relieve us. Tell me about the day-to-day life there. Like, what was the operational tempo like? How often were you guys seeing contact? Stuff like that. Yeah, so in the, in the first month that we were there, it was pretty much every day. Our platoon, we had kind of felt like, you know, where we were, we were kind of securing this little village, you know, while the rest of the Bravo Company, which was part of our first platoon, Bravo Company, but the rest of Bravo Company, they were getting in it, like, every day. And it was pretty linear, right? There was They were, like, front lines. There's like, you know third platoons there, the Taliban are on the other side of this body in this tree line. And they would just kind of go back and forth and we'd call in artillery and air. Um, but our platoon was kind of, you know, we didn't, we didn't get shot at until a couple of days after we got there. Um, but for about that first month, it was, it was pretty kinetic. I mean, it was kind of like, Hey, we're here. They're there. We're got to move. We got to take this ground. We're going to take this village. Um, and that Taliban will fall back and then we'll keep going. And it was kind of like that for a month. Um, and so finally they just all withdrew to Pakistan or, or just bugged out. And then the rest of the deployment was kind of, you know, little to no contact and just repaying, uh, villagers and, and Afghans for, for the houses that we had blown up with 2000 pounders. Cause one gunny put it, said that you guys like just chase shade for the last, the, the last few months of that deployment, which is pretty true. I mean, just you know, vehicle checkpoints, patrols, uh, standing posts, sleeping next to burn pits, etc. Meanwhile, up north, uh, we had two seven up there and now Zad, who were just getting hammered um, for months on end. I mean, they were spread out in an AO the size of Vermont, um, always calling in air. And we, you know, I think the Mew had kind of retasked much of our, you know, our Harriers and Cobras to go support them. Uh, I mean, you know, our deployment, sure, we had our kinetic phase and like, sure, you know, we all got our combat action or, you know, combat action ribbon. But, you know, 2-7 was, I mean, they were losing guys. They they were, um, they were, they were in kind of a totally different version of the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just remember being down south being thinking, like, hey, we should, we should get out there and help them out. I think there were, you know, a couple of Navy crosses came out of there. Um, I mean, some real, I mean, it's the two seven deployment in 08 is kind of like this weird forgotten, forgotten time, you know, before the big operations began in 09 and, 
and you know with Marja and Sangin and Ten, but uh, but yeah. Did you guys sustain any casualties on that first deployment? Um, so we had one killed in action uh, from a sniper platoon. Um, Coop, I'm like looking up his name. Anybody you knew personally? On that first deployment, no. Okay. No, I didn't know. I didn't know Coop well. I, I went over to the sniper platoon afterwards. He was kind of a legend. Um, but yeah. Did that change your mindset at all? What do you mean? You know, the KIA or? Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody reacts differently to that sort of thing. It, it, you know, I know you said operations were kinetic, but um, to a certain extent, it, it for a lot of people, it's a wake up call. You know, you, you get to a certain point of day-to-day operations where you almost start to feel invincible or you don't think anything's going to happen because you've had so many successes in, in a certain area that when it does happen, something does go wrong, it kind of uh, either refocuses you or just kind of wakes you up to the fact that, uh, hey, we're still in, we're still in the, the stuff here. Yeah, when, when, Will Coop, when Will Cooper died or Coop, you know, I remember, I remember that, that day well because we were, you know, it was kind of every company was in some level of contact and we had cleared a village that night. Um, and we kind of woke up the next morning and heard that, you know, we had, we had lost someone, uh, in alpha company's AO and the circumstances were, you know, it was a close in ambush. The Taliban had, had lit a bunch of, uh, houses on fire to flare out that units, uh, NVGs and then hit them, you know, in some pretty concealed bunkers, you know, this is like a, basically a pillbox, you know, half a meter off the ground, if that, um, and that was kind of a, I mean, it, you know, you kind of always go into your first deployment thinking, you know, people are going to die. You have these kind of romantic visions of, of, uh, of all of that. And then just to kind of hear it as if someone's kind of reading the news, right? Like, Hey, someone died. Like, all right, well, it, it, it's tough. It's almost, you just kind of know, like, oh, I can't really focus on it. Especially, you know, I, did, I didn't, I didn't know Coop, uh, at all. So it was just, um, just sucked just sucked to hear but being like hey you know we got we got our own job to do i mean granted the second deployment was was much different um much more personal um but uh but yeah get to that deployment then i mean let's you go back in 2010 it was right so that's two years later uh so obviously you go home refit you get your rest cycle you start training up again right nothing strange or out of the ordinary from that standpoint yeah, no, I mean, 09, yeah, so 09, 10, um, you know, we, we got back, uh, I changed platoons, um, and, you know, started the workup, and there's kind of this idea, like, oh, hey, you know, 1-6, you guys have done, you did Fallujah, Ramadi, you know, you've done Garmser, you guys are kind of maxed out on combat deployments, you know, to, to so we thought we were going to get, a, you know, kind of a cushy Iraq deployment where, we'd go up and like, tear down, you know, OPs or like pack up quad cons or whatever. Um, so after Mojave Viper, I think in July, the Iraq deployment kind of fell off and third and battalion, ninth Marines took it. So we were kind of in this limbo waiting for whatever, whatever was next in the pipe. Um, and we started to hear rumors of Afghanistan and, and, uh, you know, the, city of Marja came up, but it was kind of this amorphous, you know, where's Marja? What's Marja all about? You know, and then, you know, President uh, Obama was looking at 
had any more troops to Afghanistan. And, you know, eventually he did so in, in December. And, you know, we went in with that 30,000 troop surge. So we were in Leatherneck you know, first week of December. And then, you know, the March operation kicked off in earnest um, mid, yeah, mid-February, February 12th, 13th. Do, do you know that this deployment is going to be that much different or did it seem as, as routine as the first one? Um, yeah, it was weird, right? Like, you know, it's like, you have, Hey, we've been to Afghanistan before we've been to helmet. We know what we're doing. And it was funny, you know, we, we got off the, it was a C-17 at, at Leatherneck, you know, two five was coming out. We kind of like, it was like right out of a movie, right? We were like passing each other, uh, on you know they were walking to the c-17 to get on it we were walking off of it to start the deployment they had just kind of finished it you know we're kind of yelling at each other like hey you know i remember remember my first time to afghanistan you know kind of crapping on them like we were like old hands um so we kind of thought it'd be kind of like it before but as soon as it kicked off you know one thing we were all worried about oh man there's going to be ieds you know the taliban had barely used ieds in 2008 you know like maybe i can remember four over you know seven months or whatever and now they were using them a lot more but as soon as margin kicked off we realized like well actually the taliban here can shoot because <laughs> they were shooting a lot of you know they hit a lot of our a lot of our guys um so that was that was kind of the wake-up call like hey you know this is two years later you know we've we've been training they've been training kind of deal so um yeah all right so you get to marja um, once you're there, just paint the picture. I mean, is it dramatically different from just the visual from your first deployment? Is that, does it start off as kinetic as your first deployment? Yeah. I mean, it starts off, I mean, it pretty much, you know, we land kind of in the middle. Everyone's called it like the last Taliban stronghold, right? Like no one's gone in there, uh, throughout the course of the war. Now we're sending in, uh, two battalions supported by, you know, different units on the outskirts. Um, and yeah, we kind of, it's just getting dropped right into the, the middle of it. And we start getting shot at pretty much immediately. And that kind of goes for a few weeks and then kind of drops off as the Taliban kind of figure out, um, you know, who's who in the zoo. And then it comes back uh, around March and even more so in the summer, you know, after the poppy harvest and, you know, they, they get the money, they buy the ammo, they buy the weapons. So pretty much, um, pretty much nonstop, I guess, you know, unlike arms or in 08, which was, you know, one month of, it was pretty heavy. And then, you know, in 2010, it was pretty much a constant back and forth and not to mention we were operating under, you know, Stan McChrystal's rules of engagement. So back in 2008, you'd hear like the whine of, you know, savage and ransom, like the, 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 um, the Cobra and Huey mixed section and you'd be like, all right, I feel good. You know, we start getting shot at. They probably don't even need to be called in. They'll just start shooting back if they can see the guys. Um, and then in 2010, it was air support was pretty much a non-event. Like, Hey, maybe we'll get a show of force, you know, maybe after building a target for half a day, they'll, they'll drop something. So that was kind of disheartening. And then, you know, looking back now, I think a lot of people brought that up a lot. You know, hey, 
remember in 2008 when we had air support and now it's just kind of a joke. Could you compare the sort of level of fight to the first, from the first deployment to the second where fighters more dug in, were they more hardened? Were they more accurate or anything like that? Or did it just seem the same at the outset? No, they, they definitely seem better trained. I mean, I just feel like whoever was in Mars versus whoever was in Garmser were kind of a, you know, whether a different unit, different leadership. Um, they, uh, they seem to have spent those two years learning uh, the Marines, TTPs, and and adapting um, off them. Given in 2008, it was kind of like a stand-up fight, and we, you know, called in Artie and Air, and, you know, it was a pretty, you know, it felt like in 2008, like kind of a clean win, right? Like, oh, they were there, and now they're gone, and now everything, you know, we can just kind of walk around and, and you know, shake hands and do whatever. And then in 2010, it was much more, much more, you know, they kind of had our number. In what sense? Just from the terrain, from the actual numbers of enemy fighters, or were they had an advantage because of, of what reason? It's not so much that they had the advantage. They just understood how we operate, right? Like, you know, they could watch a patrol. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was one thing we kind of learned is that the, the Taliban were only going to shoot at us when they kind of understood exactly what they were looking at, right? When they were like, all right, there's a patrol, there's a squad, it's out. It's got to leave this base. It's going to come back to this base. You know, where, you know, when we start shooting at, where can we egress? Like, you know, it's just they, they kind of understood our rhythm, right? I think in 2008, they were just figuring it out. And then by 2010, um, they at least knew you know, how we conducted ourselves, what our, you know, what our immediate action might look like. Um, you know, they, they were very good at, at hitting a patrol right at the end of their, you know, time outside the wire. So they were kind of tired and, and they could pretty much see, uh, the Hess goes when they would open up. Um, yeah, it was just, a just different, right? You know, every, it's like, you know, now you look at it, you go fight the Taliban in 2019, 2020. I was talking to a buddy who was, you know, briefing one of the special forces units going over there. And they're like, Hey, listen, like these, these aren't, this isn't the Taliban from in 2010. Like these guys know exactly what they're doing. They're going to hit you and they're going to hit you hard. And, you know, don't think, don't think for a second you're fighting the same guys you, you were a decade ago. So, I mean, those two years, I guess it could be the same, right? You know, they learned. Yeah. I mean, the, the difference between my two, two deployments, you could see it was a much different world, but both of mine were in Iraq. So again, the, uh, the, the threats were a little bit different from that standpoint. Um, your friend, Brett, um, when I bring up his name, uh, what sort of goes through your mind and, and can you share that story with us? Sorry about standards. Yeah. Uh, even when he got blown up when, yeah. and that we're talking about, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Brett, I was talking to him, talking to him the other day, we're trying to get, get this Marjorie reunion together and I think he'll, he'll be coming up. I mean, yeah, I mean, that was a, that was kind of a, a shitty day. Um, I mean, Brett was like, he was like the first dude I met when I got to the fleet, right? Like I opened the door. Uh, 
me and the the other boot Hazen, I think we get there and he's just like he they just gotten back from the Ramadi deployment. So he was kind of still in that had that like, you know, post deployment glimmer where he's like, you know, I'm gonna get drunk at three PM even if I'm still on work and play video games and you know, get in arguments with his then girlfriend or, you know, just kind of be a goober. And you know, we've been told, you know, when you get to the fleet you're just gonna you know, people are gonna throw full beer cans at you and haze, haze the heck out of you, which I mean, the hazing definitely happened. Um, but Brett was just like, just a, just a chill dude who like welcomed, you know, some random boots in his, uh, in his, um, barracks room. And my mom was like staying out in town because we had SOI graduation school, infantry graduation. And, you know, she couldn't get on base. And, uh, first thing, you know, Brett, Brett did is like, Hey, you want to, you need a ride to the front? I was like, yeah. So that was, that was that. And then, um, you know, we, we did the, the first deployment together and our platoons were co-located and down, down in Garmshire. And my, my team got attached to Bravo company in, in Marges. So I saw, saw a lot of him and yeah, one day we were just, uh, had gotten back and heard this, this, got back from patrol and heard this this boom it sounded you know sounded pretty close and next thing you know like brett's screaming over the 153 being like in the face like and i don't think he was trying to scream i think he was just you know deaf because he had been blown up so we uh so we ran out there and he's lying in the ditch and kind of blood everywhere and guys have been hit you don't know they're hit and um yeah, my my corpsman Wells starts working on him, sets sets up the scene, and I'm you know doing what I can, and he's he has his like uh he's got like this cool pics digital camera, he wants like a picture of him, you know, so took a picture of him with that, held on to his eye pro, um, cleaned him up as best we could, and, and called in called in the Blackhawks, which got held up because we had. Hamid Karzai was in the district center or in part of the city center. Um, but yeah, they eventually landed and we, we put him on there. And but yeah, now he, he's like, a, he's, I think he's going to recruiting duty now. He's still in. Oh, he's still in. Okay. So he yeah, obviously yeah. He came through fairly unscathed, all things considered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he kind of, I think he's got like that scar on his face and I think he like stopped putting like any scar cream so he could have it. So it looks cool. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if that's completely factual, but there was also that definite moment where you know he he I think he had a piece of steel. He'd have to verify this, but I think it went like right through his his testicles, and he, and it was like that moment from Band of Brothers where he had to like tear the pants open and like look to make sure everything was still there, and uh, it that definitely happened. Yeah, I, I I say this often, you know, in the uh, three plus years we've been telling stories on this podcast. Thomas, um, one of the funny anecdotes I found out that every guy who gets blown up, the first question they ask is, my junk okay? It seems to be that for males, everything else after that is negotiable, right? Yeah, and it's like you get shot in the shoulder. It's like, hey, is everything still there? Like, yeah, man, you only, only get shot in the shoulder. But in this case, Brett, you know, there was a lot of blood in his crotch, and we're just like, oh, man, you got to open that up. So... Uh, <laughs> Again, guys who get their legs blown off kind of do the same thing. Is my junk okay? Uh, so it is a it is a very normal reaction, which, again, I would have never thought because I, 
thankfully I've never been blown up, but it makes makes a ton of sense. So Brett ends up surviving. Um, what about the guys who didn't? Um, you know, what are those memories like? Yeah, I mean that's. I guess yeah, I guess those are in a different compartment. Um, yeah, it just uh, just Josh DeForges. You know, he was a I was a team leader. He was a he was a fellow team leader. He was like, you know, in Garmser, he was like a he came from security forces. He was a sergeant, um, and like you know, we had this little fob or it wasn't a fob, like an outpost gym that we made from sandbags. And like, he was the first dude who taught me how to actually like squat with like weight on my back. Um, I don't know. And, that, and um, just miss those guys, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, uh, I mean, um, your platoon commander, Brandon, um, who passed on, uh, you, I read that you kind of described him as a good officer or somebody who cared about you guys. Um, you know, obviously it's, I don't know if it's a different relationship with your platoon commander than one of your guys, but, um, you know, what are the me- first memories that pop into mind when you, when you think about him? Yeah. I mean, Brandon was, you know, he was a, my platoon commander on my first deployment, um, uh, and the best memory I have have about him. So he, you know, he, he passed away in March. So by then, you know, I was in a different platoon. He was in, in charge of the, you know, calf platoon, the anti-armor guys who were, you know, vicked up in MRAPs. But, uh, yeah, my, my first deployment in the workup, I, uh, I was like, you know, I, I knew my acronyms. I could, I knew what, a, you know, I could, I could screw around with a 119 Fox and he wanted me to be, like the platoon RO, which is not a f- ideal position for anyone, like to walk around with the 119 and the platoon platoon commander, um, and be away from your squad and literally just be like a mobile telephone. Like, yeah, you could know a nine line, but if I'm sitting next to the platoon commander, I'm not going to be doing anything cool with the radio. It'd be, it was like a nightmare scenario. Um, and I remember we were doing like one. I think we were like at Mount Town or something. And, you know, he was trying to, you know, he had done something with the radio. He was having something with a fill and I, and I fixed it. He was, <clears throat> and like afterwards, he like pulled me aside. This is PFC Gibbons now for Lance Corporal Gibbons, now, 19 years old. And he's like, TM, he was my first name. He's like, do you want to be the, the platoon radio operator? I was like, Sir, absolutely the heck not. Like, I want to go back to my squad more than anything. And he's like, all right, go back to your squad. And I I feel like in that moment, there was just, you know, it kind of, it kind of like dictated what my career in the Marine Corps would be and um, or like decided what it would be. And I, I just, I really appreciate it. And then, um, and, uh, yeah, one of my, my last memories of him, we, we was at five Marja, it's like a week before he died. And I, my, I was there doing like an EDL, just like getting serial numbers for some of the weapons we were sending home. And, you know, there was like one sat phone that weapons company had. And, uh, and we were leaving 
had to, you know, hop a convoy back to our company position. And Brandon, you know, he had the phone and he saw me and he was like, Hey man, you, you call, you call. I was, I was just going to call someone. And, and, uh, and so I called my girlfriend and we talked for like 20 minutes. And I gave the phone and Brandon tried, I think he was calling some girl he was seeing and she didn't pick up. And, uh, and then I left and then he died. And I always think like, I, I hope he got that call through, you know, I hope somebody picked up. I how hope did, he got it again. How did you hear about it? Um, yeah, I was, I was up at Bravo company's position. He was down South. Uh, I was doing like a run around the LZ and, uh, I had my headphones in and all of a sudden, you know, that Brandon was a platoon commander of a, cat too i think white horse that was a call sign and we had a white horse section up with us and all of a sudden i see all these guys like kind of running to you know, where they have the mraps clustered and they have the you know radio watch and everyone's like standing there staring at the radio um we're like staring at the cab i don't know if they had like a 117 out or but everyone's in everyone's in a circle and uh yeah i run over there and uh, they're like, yeah, White Horse two or one. I forget the call sign, but you know which number. But they got a KIA, and uh, we're just waiting on the Zap code, right? You know, Zap is like your initials and the last four of your of your social. And um, yeah, finally the Zap comes up. It's Bravo, Bravo, Brandon Barrett, and his his four and. When you when you heard that that Bravo Bravo in the last four, I mean, can you describe that that emotion? Did you know it immediately, or did you kind of not believe it? No, I knew it. I knew it immediately. I think I did. I don't know. I, I didn't cry. I don't remember crying. It's just. something you tell the guys and like, you, you know, you're in that environment where this stuff's going to happen. I think you kind of realize then like you can't, you can't dwell on it. Your brain doesn't even let you dwell on it. I mean, you kind of have your, the rest of your life to, uh, to do that. What did I write that day? Here, I have my journal at my desk for whatever reason. Let's see. Five, five, 2010. Brandon Barrett shot and killed route elephant. He will be missed. That's it. Seems very matter of fact. Yeah. I mean, that's where everyone's head was at, right? Yeah, you got I mean, the rest of your lives to figure out, figure out what the hell happened. Sure. What it was for. When you think back on that moment now, how do your emotions differ or they don't? I mean, at the time, I mean, I guess the only way you could describe your emotions is like immediately carterized, like any, any point, anything beyond that, anything beyond the matter of fact would be detrimental to you, the guys you were in charge of, like what you were supposed to be doing, which was 
carrying out your mission and not dying. Um, but now, I mean, I, you know, immense sadness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what, uh, you know, just even recalling to you that, that last phone call, these are things I don't like to think about because I mean, that's it. Or going back into the company office after you come back from deployment and there's his desk and he's just, uh, it's just empty. You get back from the deployment and you have the time to start processing this stuff. Was there a moment that it all hit you and it came out from an emotional standpoint? Um, not that I can remember. I just knew there was a moment where we were all kind of, I knew we were all kind of in trouble, you know, you know, cause you're back before you go on leave and you're back at the barracks and, um, and you're kind of, you're back in the U S but at the same time you also feel like, you know, you're still with all the guys. They're like a couple doors away. And, uh, you know, I was just sitting in my barracks room and I could hear, friend of mine just screaming at his at his girlfriend through through the like cinder block barracks walls it was like the middle of the day and it was just like the you know i never heard it before right we'd been living all in the same place before you know and it just it, it just like all of a sudden he kind of realized like maybe we're all not okay maybe maybe there might be something wrong with us I don't know why that triggered me to think that, or maybe it was just like what he was yelling about or just, yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's funny because my last deployment was in 2011. I think that more now than I ever did, you know, years ago. You know, I, I, sometimes I feel like there are still things that are residual that I haven't even bothered to dig up. Um, that for, you know, reasons in life, you know, I got married, I had kids and everything else that, um, some things are start to manifest themselves in weird ways that I ask that question now more than I ever did before. Maybe, maybe I'm not okay. I don't know. You know, it's, it's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine who's going on his 10th deployment he left in the last couple of days and he was at one point, you know, my squad leader in 08. And, you know, he's very aware, right? He's like, I, I feel like I'm, he's been in this pattern so much, right? Of deployments, getting ready for deployments and training. Like, I, you know, I did four years. I got out not a long time when it comes to other people and how many, how much stuff they've done in the military. And right. Like once I got out in 2011, I've had until today to kind of unpack those four years right and try and understand why i did this or why the country did that or like you know what's afghanistan all about you know like i have that i've had this time he's had none of that time and he's starting to understand that like you know i've been doing this for so long so often that things are starting to come through the cracks like that you know that maybe he's having bad dreams or that he's tired because like you can't, you know, you're just going at a million miles an hour for almost two decades. Like eventually your brain just has to do it. Unlike, you know, you and me, we kind of, we can go look back at 2010 and 2011 and 2008 and be like, well, why do we feel that way? 
you know, why do you feel this way that now than you did then when he's kind of operating like he's always in the then, right? Not the now. I don't know. I, I don't want to fast forward too much, but, you know, just obviously we talked before. You went to Georgetown after you got out. You started doing the writing thing. Um, when you write, and now that you're a Pentagon correspondent and covering, you know, the wars from the other side, uh, when you write, how much of sort of the emotions of those moments do you try to put in your writing or do you keep them out for the sake of objectivity? It just depends what I'm writing about. I mean, I guess it's like kind of how I, you know, approach reporting and like what is my short four years in the service do to how I view the military now. And um, I mean, right, it's kind of like, it's kind of the way I see it is there was a moment in my life where I was like at the scene of the crime, right? Like I watched it happen. Like I, and you know, at the the front, the tippy top of the, of the United States foreign policy aims or, you know, adventurism or wars, whatever you want to call it. There I was, I watched it. And now here I am all these years later, kind of on the back end where I can watch, you know, the Pentagon, the White House, military officials try and put that shell around it in the form of press releases or information that don't even really touch the reality, right? Of like, you know, what's going on in Syria? Like, well, what's, you know, specialist belt buckle doing in Derezor, Syria right now? I don't know. You don't know. I mean, I'll tell you they're, what, counter-ISIS mission? I'm just saying, like, at, at the core of all of all of those press releases, of, of all of those statements, you know, I, I kind of have an idea maybe of what it looks like or like maybe that's right and that or that's wrong just because I have some instinctual feeling based off of mm. what I did before. Yeah, it's like so at the end of the day, you know, I got out I, as a corporal, picked up sergeant in the IRR. Like I know next to nothing. You know, I can give you the what the you know salute acronym stands stands for, you know, <laughs> what happened in it what happened in, in Afghanistan in 2008 and 2010 as at the tactical level, but it doesn't, doesn't give me like, doesn't at all give me the feeling like, Oh, I've got it all figured out. I guess I can just, you know, have a better bullshit detector than maybe some other people. Well, and to that end, full disclosure for, for the listeners, I actually found uh, Thomas on something he wrote on Twitter. I, I, I reached out to you because I thought you had a very, honest and refreshing opinion, um, you know, even though there were some things counter to it, because like you, you know, now I, I see the the wars in the world in a different manner because you walk away from it, you have a better understanding of how and why things happen. To that end, though, I would tell you that our coverage of this stuff in general is very streamlined. Like, knowing what I know now, would I go back and do things differently, or if I had you know, the ability to dictate some sort of foreign policy, would I have think we should have made some different decisions? Maybe. But I can say with 100% confidence, in the moments that I was in combat, in the moments where those decisions had to be made, I don't think we made too many wrong decisions. Sure, there are tactical things that went wrong, and there are battles that we may have, quote, lost, if you want to put a W or an L on it. But in general, I think it's dangerous 
to try and extrapolate all these years later, a given battle, a given decision, a given time frame um, as right or wrong, because given the information we had at the time, we were doing the best with what we had. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it makes sense. I don't know, but I mean, at the same time, it kind of like, right, like, all right, let's look at Marja. What was Marja about? You know, what what were the Marines doing in Helmand Province? Why were the Marines in Helmand Province? You know, the Marines wanted their Anbar in Afghanistan, right? And mm-hmm. they got it. You know, why did Larry Nicholson want to go into Marja? Well, it was the last Taliban stronghold. Like, how could you have taken it over? You know, you talked to you know, the ODAs, they said, Hey, you know, that was a a mission for two ODAs for, you know, you know, like, yeah, we, we were operating on the, at the, at the, at the, what we knew at the time. But the point is like, that didn't turn out well yet. People continued to climb up the ladder and we kind of just bought it kind of hook, line and sinker that like, Hey, we did what we could. It's still not going well, but you know, we're not being reflective enough or looking back enough to understand that like maybe the whole concept of what we're doing is flawed from the get-go. I don't know. I mean, I think you like you kind of need you need to be able to look back and be like, no, yeah, that I, was wrong. That's fair. I I just I guess my question to you is knowing what you know now and and given how you cover this, is there any sort of Anger or and anger is not the right word, sort of just like frustration about the way certain things went down because you lost friends, because um, the cost was high, that you sit there and you use that hindsight 2020 to say we should have done X or should have done Y kind of deal. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, you look at like, you know, most American foreign policy decisions like emotion plays into it on some level. Right. I mean, like, mm-hmm. and I, you know, looking back and like looking at how, how Marja turned out, like, you know, you ask someone, you know, an expert, like, yeah, the Marines did everything they should have done in Marja, in Helmand province. And they did a good job at it. You know, it was the policy that failed them. Right. It was the, you know, this idea that we're going to draw down in 2011, 2013, that like what our gains were going to be, you know, thrown away eventually. Like, well, if that was the case, right, if that was the, you know, if that was the policy, then, you know, why didn't the strategy reflect the policy? I mean, I'm just saying, like, yeah, of course. I mean, like, you know, my friends, Brandon, Josh, Matt, who was wounded and passed away after he came back, you know, like, how can you not look back and kind of see, you you just, you trust the institution, right? You're like, all right, I'm going into Marja. I'm going to take down Marja because. Well, what choice do you have, right? I mean, right. <laughs> not trusting right, them means exactly. you leave and you, you go AWOL. I mean, that's, you know, there's not a lot right, of options. You, of, course. of course. Yeah, there's not a lot of options. You just, you believe in the machine, right? Like this is, this is what you signed up for. This is, you know, these are the books that you read. You know, these are the, this is the idea that you've bought into. And then only to kind of get out and years go by and then kind of look at, you know, everyone's agenda, everyone, you know, whether it's, you know, the generals, the politicians, you know, they all have different aims, right? Like they all have different ideas of how they're fighting the war and you just got caught up in one of them. Like there's just like, it's just, it's disorienting and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Like, 
it's just like that's just how it went that's how it always goes in these things right but mm-hmm. to just not know it then and kind of be there and then yeah and just let me ask you this go back and talk to thomas right after his deployments um and then go back and talk to thomas right as he starts covering you know uh the wars for the New York times. What would you say to each one of those younger versions of yourself as far as a piece of advice about how to handle, you know, where you are at that stage of your life? So I'm talking to myself right after I got back or right before I right after you get back. What would you take it one at a time right after you get back? What would you say to yourself knowing what you know now? What would you say to yourself about how to handle everything that you just went through? I mean, I guess I would say to myself after I just got back, like, hey, don't discount the feelings that you have now. Like, don't think that they're, you know not a big deal, I guess. Like they're whatever you have in your head is and think in trying to write it off as being like, well, you know, this happened, that happened, but I'm fine. Just like, just know that that's going to be there forever and you're never going to have an answer. And that's okay. Then go to right before you take on this job at the New York times where you're, you know, going to be, covering this war, these wars, and every aspect of foreign policy, you know, knowing what you know now, again, what you've learned about both inside and outside influences, what do you say to yourself about how you start doing this job? I would say don't forget the guy on the ground. And realize the people who were in charge of you, you know, who made these decisions, you know, to, to send people here, there, you know, direct, you know, whatever the American military strategy, just realize they don't mo- know much more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's true to a certain extent, right? I mean, <laughs> they have certain levels of information you don't have access to, but the idea of being able to make that decision, you know, in a cogent manner doesn't always add up, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just this, this idea of trust. And it's just, you know, I guess that's that's what's degraded, you know, from 2008 to now significantly. I'll ask one final question this way. Are we a – I don't want to say we were better or worse force. How much of a different military are we now? And what are the consequences of that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I kind of feel like, you know, what we are now as a military is that you have a lot of senior leaders who grew up in Afghanistan and Iraq and very much, like I said, you know, emotion plays so much, I think, in our, our foreign policy and strategic decisions that, you know, the world is kind of viewed through the GWAT eyes and i think there are people who want to look forward and want to think about you know great power competition whatever the hell that means by the way i have no idea mm-hmm. um i'm trying to figure it out uh, it's like you know on the, on the agenda but you know who want to look forward but 
there's no way you can look for it. There's no way, A, you know, your leadership can divorce their attachment to these wars that we're still very much fighting in some way and also look to the future. I just don't think we have the, uh, the United States military has the ability to do that. I think it wants to, you know, see like little stuff, you know, like, Hey, we need to get better at electronic warfare or cyber or, you know, I don't even know what the future looks like, you know? And then it's like the, this mine policy that came out like, well, whatever the future looks like, we need more landmines for whatever reason. Like, it's just this, I don't know. It just, it kind of feels like we're in two places at once. And I think for any military, for any, but for, for any human being or anybody, it's just not, not really conducive to success. But that's just me. No, and that's me, you know, uh, as the Lance Corporal who was told, hey, stay in your lane. Um, that was, that's kind of like outside my lane. But that's just kind of, you know, my general feeling, I guess. Well, no, I, I, listen, I, I'm one of those senior guys, right? Like, I mean, people who listen to the podcast know, you know, I'm a colonel still in the guard and, and, but I'm a little bit counterculture in that aspect. I mean, I remember when I was, we were, I was there for the closeout of Iraq in 2011 and you had one or two star generals and O six is all over the place with their claws in the rug, trying to fight to stay, you know, president Obama saying we're leaving, we're leaving. And, and there are legitimately people looking for reasons to try and stay because they grew up in this environment. And, and, and I think it's a very lucid point that this whole generation of leadership now running this thing. And, and honestly, I think we need to turn, turn the garden over quicker get out some of the guys in their 50s and 60s and move into the guys in their 30s and 40s to start to make these decisions because I think we're better equipped to say enough is enough. Like we need to start changing the focus of where we are and how we do business and move in a different direction and not be scared of that direction because it's not combat oriented, right? Because I think there is that that, that whole sort of ideology that if we're not in combat, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. And that's not true. Right. Yeah. So... Anyway, just just as you said, uh, to quote you, eh, just one guy's opinion, right? Yeah, just, yeah, just trying to stay in my lane and not get fired. Exactly. That's pretty much my approach. Well, Thomas, listen, I appreciate you sharing your story. I appreciate your honesty, and I appreciate certainly your candor. I love your work, bro, and I, I don't say that suck up. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan. I think you bring you know a whole different level of reporting and accuracy and honesty and fairness to a, a very – spirited sort of debate, but also not a lot of people have the experience to know what they're talking about and you do. And so I, I certainly thank you for the work that you do as far as reporting on this thing in, in this quote, fake news sort of world. Yours is not, it, it is as close and as accurate to honest and fairness as we can get. So I, I certainly thank you for that as well. No, 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 thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Thomas Gibbons Neff. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground, brother. All right. Take care. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
Choose the browser that puts you first. Microsoft Edge empowers you to browse your way with fast performance, strong security, and innovation that matters. Whether you're shopping, searching, streaming, or just browsing, Microsoft Edge helps you save time, money, and peace of mind. With incredible speed and security, Microsoft Edge makes staying in the flow safer and simple by being tailored to how you manage your browsing and adapting to your preferences. Stay protected with built-in security features that scan and block potentially dangerous sites, check your saved passwords for breaches, and help generate stronger passwords anytime you make a new account. Microsoft Edge offers the highest rated protection against phishing and malware attacks on Windows 10. For younger users, Microsoft Edge also has Kids Mode, which offers a fun, tailored experience with added protection for web users ages 5 to 12. Save money with automatic coupon, price comparison, and price history tools. Make money for yourself or even your favorite causes with cashback and Microsoft rewards in Bing. Explore what awaits when you expect more from your browser with Microsoft Edge and raise your expectations for what the web can be. Microsoft Edge, security, speed, and innovation built for you.